Father, we come before you, Lord. We thank you for this day that you've given us. As your word says, this is the, the day that you have made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Help us to rejoice in you today, Lord. Help us to look to you. We thank you, Lord, for saving us. We thank you for blessing us in so many ways, Lord. So help us give thanks in all things. We pray that you would unite us in the faith, that you would edify us, build us up, Lord, strengthen us today. Unify this body, Lord, and help us to understand your word. Help us to apply it in our lives, to go out into this world and be salt and light. And so may you just permeate this building today, Lord. Permeate our hearts and our minds with your truth. And so be with us today, Lord. Bless this message and encourage us all in Jesus' name. Amen. title of today's message is Do All Things Without Grumbling. Do All Things Without Grumbling. And we've made our way through seven of the nine fruits of the Holy Spirit, Gala- uh, Galatians 5, 22 and 23, and gentleness and self-control are left, and Lord willing, in the weeks ahead, we'll go ahead and work our way through gentleness and then self-control. But as I was praying throughout this week and praying again yesterday, the Lord really put on my heart the teaching that I have for today. And a verse that's continued to be pressed upon my heart and mind in preparation for today is Philippians chapter 2, verse 14. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. Short verse, but packed with a lot. Philippians 2, 14. Do all things without grumbling and disputing. Now, Paul's encouraging this Philippian church. They were doing a lot of things right. They were staying the course. They were rejoicing And Paul continued to tell them to rejoice around 20 times in the book of Philippians. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. And then in Philippians 3, he says, to remind you of the same things again is no trouble to me. But right before that, he says, rejoice, finally rejoice in the Lord. Throughout the book, he's saying rejoice, rejoice. And this is what can hamper our rejoicing in the Lord. And that is grumbling. And so in chapter 2, he talks about being selfless considering others more important than yourself. And then he gives the example of Jesus. He says, have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the very form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped or held onto, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of a man. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it goes on to say, for this reason also, God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, whether in heaven or on earth or under the earth. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Great passage. Awesome passage about the divinity of Christ, the humility of Christ, how Jesus was a bondservant, what he did on the cross for our sins, how he humbled himself. And so Paul says, do the same. Humble yourself. Look at Christ as the example. And then he goes on to say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And then verse 14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And then the verse following that, why? That you may prove yourselves to be innocent and blameless, children of God above reproach in the midst of, of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights of the world, holding fast to the word of life so that in the day of Christ I'll have reason to glory because I did not run in vain nor toil in vain. Paul's saying, I hope I'm not doing this in vain. I'm pouring into you guys, pouring into all these churches. Hopefully it's not in vain. 
Hopefully the gospel continues to take root in your heart and in your mind and in your soul and that you continue to move forward in Christ and that you do not grumble. And when you don't grumble, you prove yourselves to be lights in this world. When we go through difficulties, tests, trials, hardships, struggles in life, when we go through these things with thankfulness, when we go through them with joy and with gratitude, we're showing how we're different from the world. We're showing how we're like Jesus and how when he went to the cross, he didn't grumble, he didn't complain, he trusted his God, our God, he trusted his Father, and he went to the cross for the joy set before him. He was mistreated, he was maligned, he was betrayed, he was abandoned by his very own, he was crucified. If anyone could have any reason to grumble or complain, it would be Jesus. And yet, he didn't do that, and neither should we. We prove ourselves to be lights in this world when we do not grumble. No matter what circumstances we're in, when we continue to rejoice, we show ourselves to be bright lights. According to m1psychology.com, while we may think we are just venting, in reality, Complaining has a significant impact on our brains and our happiness. The average person complains 15 to 30 times a day, end quote. 15 to 30 times a day, most people complain. Some of us can justify it. I'm just venting. These kids are wearing me down. This job is stressful. My spouse did this or did that or said this, and so I'm going to go vent. But many times venting is just a cloak for complaining. We as Christians, we want to lower that number from 30 down to 15. We want to lower it to zero, right? That's our goal. We want to do all things without grumbling and complaining. The world complains. The world grumbles. That's just what they do. If you work in a secular job, if you cross paths with people in the world, it's not going to take long for you to hear the grumbling and the complaining. There's many reasons to complain in this world. And if I sit in the staff room at my job for any time long, that's just what people do. We're not getting paid enough. This manager said this. This job stinks because of this. And part of us is like, yeah, at least part of me. I'm like, yeah, you're right. And before I know it, I'm going there too. And I have to catch myself. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. That's verse 14. Verse 15, he says, Nor do men light a lamp and hide it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to the whole house. And then he says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. If we're going to shine as bright lights in this world, one key thing that we need to remember is that we do not resort to to grumbling or complaining. Earlier in this week, I was really convicted. I was starting to, let's just say, because of life in general and things that were happening at my job, I was starting to complain just a little bit, maybe more than a little bit. But complaining and a little bit of bitterness and this and that started to swell up in my soul. And then I began to briefly justify it for a little while. I have reason to be complaining about this thing and that thing that we're going on. I mean, I have good reasons here, is what I began to tell myself. But then that night I couldn't sleep. 
And God was reminding me of several verses and several themes throughout Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. God's will for you and me is that we rejoice in everything, pray in everything, and give thanks in everything. All the time. That should, that should be our lives. Constantly p- praying, constantly rejoicing, constantly giving thanks. Just lifting gratitude and thankfulness up to the Lord. And you know what? If we're complaining, we can't do that. We can't have a heart of complaint and bitterness and thankfulness and praying to the Lord. They don't coincide. Ephesians 5.20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Colossians 3.17, whatever you do, in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. These are verses running through my head at night. These are themes in scripture that the Lord is convicting me with. And then Philippians 2.14, do all things without grumbling or disputing. And then I was just confessing to the Lord as I lay there. Lord, forgive me. Lord, help me to give you thanks in all circumstances. Help me to rejoice. And so that is a fight that we're all in, a fight to rejoice in the Lord, a fight to give thanks in all circumstances. If we truly believe Romans 8.28 and Philippians 3.12, Romans 8.28, and we know that God works all things together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We've heard that verse a million times. Do we believe it? Do I believe that God's working things in in and through me at my job, in my family, wherever I am? Do I believe that God's working it for my good and for his glory? Philippians 2.12, God is at work in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God's doing something in and through all of the trials, the difficulties, the circumstances that we go through in life. He's allowing it for a reason. We just don't always know it or understand it at the time. Someday, perhaps in heaven, if not in this life, he'll make it known to us. He's allowing these things in our life for a reason. The questions for us today and in our Christian walks with the Lord are, do we only praise the Lord in good times? Do we only give thanks in the easier seasons of life? Do we worship him with glad hearts and loud voices only when things seem to be going our way? What about the harder times? What about the seasons that bring relentless tests, the periods of life that aren't going the way we want, or even the smaller tests, those little things, those little nagging flies in the ointment, as it says in the book of Ecclesiastes, those nagging trials, those little irritabilities, that little leaven that leavens the whole lump of dough. What about that kind of stuff that happens in our lives that could drive us to complaining? Whatever it could be in your life or my life, big trials or little irritabilities, God's word has the help that we need to not complain. And in the Old Testament, there's a man that I want to look at today, a man that you've all heard of. His name is Job. Job, and it's ironic, J-O-B, some new Christians that have never heard how it's pronounced think it's Job, and go figure, Job is a thing that many of us can complain about, right? And so here we can learn from Job. Scripture tells us Job was blameless. It says that in verse 1 of Job, chapter 1, blameless, upright, 
fearing God. He's the greatest of all the men of the East. That's what the scripture tells us. Thousands of sheep and camels, hundreds of oxen and donkeys, very many servants. He's a wealthy man. He's an upright man. Everything's going well. He's in a great season of life. He's prospering. He's making sacrifices for his kids. He's laying his head on his pillow at night, probably at peace. Everything's going well. Many of us know the story. He lost it all in a matter of a day. Animals destroyed, servants consumed by fire, all his children dead in a matter of a day. Talk about a trial, right? One day you pretty much lose it all. How would we respond? Haven't we complained over much less than that? How does Job respond? If you turn to Job chapter 1 with me, Chapter 1, verse 20 through 22. If you're the type of person that underlines in your Bible, puts stars next to verses like I do, circles things, however you need to make note of these verses, I highly recommend you memorize them, meditate on them, do whatever you need to do to hide these verses in your heart because these verses are like gold when it comes to difficulties, trials, and how we should respond as Christians. The text says, Then Job arose and he tore his robe. He shaved his head and he fell to the ground and worshiped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked I shall return there. The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Through all this, Job did not sin, nor did he blame God. If you didn't know verses 1 through 19, if you didn't know what just happened, you might have thought this was just any other day for Job. I mean, other than the fact that he tore his robe and he shaved his head, which back then was a sign of grief and sorrow, everything else, most of it, seems to be a profession of trusting the Lord. Perhaps things he might have said every other day, and since it was a habit for him, here again he says it. He worshiped the Lord. Naked have I come into the world, naked I will return to it. God gives, God takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. And all this he did not sin, nor did he blame God. That's my heart. Hopefully that's your heart. Whatever it is that Satan brings your way and God allows in your life, may we say blessed be the name of the Lord. May we turn to him and worship. And then it only got worse from there. Chapter 2, verse 7, it says Satan smote him with sore boils, covered his body, head to toe. Pretty much whole family taken from him, his whole business taken from him, lost all his wealth. Now he's got boils from head to toe. It says, I think in verse 8, he's scraping these sores off from his body. Verse 9, it continues to get worse. His wife said to him in chapter 2, verse 9, do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. What an encouragement. What an uplifting spouse. How would us, many of us husbands respond in that moment? The worst day of your life, boils head to toe, you're in pain, and your wife says that. Listen to Job's response in verse 10. Another verse that you should circle, mark up, meditate on. But he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. He could have just said, you fool. He says it in a nice way. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. 
Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? Ultimately, he's saying this is from God. He knows that God's in control of everything. He knows God could have stopped this if God wanted to and that God was allowing this. Even though Satan was the one carrying these things out, Satan could only do any of these things because God allowed him to. And so Job's saying, look, I've received good from the Lord. Now it's time to receive adversity. I'm going to continue to worship and hold fast to the Lord. Chapter 6, verse 10, Job says this, But it is my consolation, and I rejoice in unsparing pain, that I have not denied the words of the Holy One. Chapter 13, verse 15, first part of the verse, he says, Though he slay me, I will hope in him. Then in chapter 23, verses 10 through 12, it says, But he knows the way I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot has held fast to his path. I have kept his way and not turned aside. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. All those are verses mark up, memorize, meditate on. Job continued to cling to the Lord, continued to trust in him. He wasn't perfect if you read the whole book, right? There was, he was definitely getting close to that line of grumbling and complaining. Perhaps he crossed it a few times, and that shows us that Job wasn't perfect. He needed grace just like the rest of us. Chapter 31, Job over and over is asking these questions. He uses this two-letter word, if. And he uses it about 15 times or so in chapter 31. And in chapter 31, verse 3, he says, Is it not calamity to the unjust and disaster to those who work iniquity? There was a struggle going on in his mind. I'm blameless. I'm righteous. I was doing everything right. I was trusting the Lord. And I know the Lord's allowing this for a reason, but it still doesn't make sense. I know the Lord destroys the wicked. I know he destroys the unjust. I know calamity comes upon them. And then he gives this long list. If I have walked with falsehood, if my step has turned from me or from the way, if any spot has stuck to my hands, and this is in chapter 31, and I just picked out the verses where he says these things. If any spot has stuck to my hands, if my heart has been enticed by a woman, if I have despised the claim of my male or female slaves, if I have lifted up my hand against the orphan, if I have put my confidence in gold, if I have gloated because of my wealth was great, if my land cries out against me, if I have eaten its fruit without money, he's saying, if I did any of these things, then I could kind of understand why this is happening to me. But I didn't do any of that. I lived a pure, blameless, upright life before the Lord, and yet this is happening. Essentially, that entire chapter and much of the book of Job is the three-letter word, the question, why? That's what Job's really doing. Why? And that's what we do it from time to time. Why, Lord? Why is this happening? Why did this happen? Why that? And there comes a time where you just need to put your hand over your mouth and we, need, we all need to just say to the Lord, your ways are not my ways. One preacher just said, or one preacher once said, as a gnat might seek to drink in the ocean, so a finite creature might seek to comprehend the eternal God. It's kind of an interesting illustration. How long would it take a gnat to drink the ocean? 
and how long and you know how can we even comprehend God and that's the book of Job the answer is you can't and towards the end of the book Job says I these things are far too wonderful for me when God shows him and speaks to him and he sees a sight of God's glory and beauty he's never seen before he puts his hand over his mouth he repents in dust and ashes and he says these things are far too wonderful for me so there are many things that we can learn from Job but particularly in chapter 1 and chapter 2 in chapter 1 verses 20 through 22 I want to focus on those three verses and make three observations today three observations that we can look to Job to help us to not grumble no matter what life brings our way number 1 we see in verse 20 Job arose tore his robe shaved his head fell to the ground it's a sign of mourning Job wept Job mourned mourning weeping hurting expressing sorrow over the pains and difficulties in life is not only normal it's not only a normal response to things in this sin fallen world it's actually good Jesus wept at the grave everything Jesus did was good and Jesus wept at the grave of Lazarus Jeremiah wept over Jerusalem Timothy wept when Paul left and he missed him many many places in scripture where men and women of God show sorrow. Job's sorrow turned to what though? And that's what we'll see here in the verse. But also Joshua chapter 7, verse 6. Israel's defeated by Ai and it says of Joshua, then Joshua tore his clothes, fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening, both he and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. You see that throughout scripture ripping of clothes, dust, ashes, all signs of grief, sorrow, pain. It may look different today. Probably aren't, aren't ripping your shirt when you're sorrowful and crying. Perhaps you might do that. Shave your head, throw dust in the air. Doesn't look exactly the same today. But we grieve in different ways. The question is, though, where do we go from there? Jesus moved forward and he healed Lazarus and rose him from the grave. Jeremiah turned his tears into preaching, fervently reaching out to the people saying, turn to the Lord and live. Timothy faithfully continued serving. Joshua got up and prayed and continued leading. Job's weeping turned, as we see in verse 20, to worship. Shaved his head, fell to the ground, and he worshiped. He worshiped. The Hebrew word, is shaka it can be translated bow down pay homage it's a humble reverent posture toward god worship says to god god i love you i praise you i trust you my life is yours i'm entrusting it to you you're worthy of my praise in whatever circumstances i'm in i'm trusting lord that you're allowing Whatever it may be in my life, you're allowing it for a reason. And so I'm going to continue to trust you and praise you. Job was not going to let the adversity, the pain, the sorrow, the difficulty of the situation quench his worship. Instead of complaining, he worshiped. Do we do the same thing? What are we allowing in our lives to quench our worship to the Lord? Psalm 95, 6 through 8. 
Come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our Maker, for He is our God. We are the people of His pasture and the sheep of His hand. Song we sang growing up. But verse 8 says this Today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as in the days of Massa in the wilderness. It's verses 7 and part of verse 8 are repeated three times in Hebrews chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 4 when the writer to the Hebrews is telling them not to go back to the law, not to lose the faith, not to harden their hearts. He quotes this verse three times. Do not harden your hearts as they did at Meribah and Massa. What is Meribah and what is Massa? Exodus 15 through 17. The Israelites were led through the Red Sea. You remember the story? 400 years Israel was enslaved in Egypt. God brought down the 10 plagues. Finally, the plague of the Passover, the death angel wiped out their firstborn child of those who didn't put on their doorpost and on their lintel the blood of the lamb. Well, then Israel runs up to the Red Sea and they look behind them and the Egyptians are chasing after them. And right from that point forward, they begin to complain. They cry out to Moses and say, why didn't we just go back to Egypt. Why don't we have graves in Egypt? Why don't we die there? Because we're going to die here. Look, we're up against the Red Sea and here come the Egyptians. There's no hope for us. And that's when the grumbling all began. Yet we know the story. God parted the Red Sea, saved them through the water, rescued them, drowned the Egyptians. Awesome story. God's power. They're dancing, they're singing. And then in Exodus 15, 24, it says that God leads them out into the wilderness and there's no water. Do they worship or do they complain? Exodus 15, 24. So the people grumbled at Moses saying, what shall we drink? Some people have said, if I just saw the power of God, if I saw God like Moses did or the Israelites did, or have you ever heard that? Even from non-believers, if I just saw miracles, if I just saw God working, I would trust in him. You have a prime example right here of the Israelites who saw God's power. They saw God working. If anyone should trust him and believe him and worship him and not turn to grumbling and complaining, it should be them. And yet over and over in chapter 15 and then in chapter 16, verse 2, and the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. So God said, okay, I'm still going to provide for you. In chapter 16, he brings meat and he brings bread down from heaven. He gives them manna to feed them. He gives them quail. And the bread is a picture of Jesus. Jesus said in John 6, 41, that I am the bread that, is ki- that came down from heaven. I'm the bread that came down from heaven. And you know what? In John 6, 41 through 43, the Jews grumbled in the New Testament Jesus is referring them back to this story of the bread that came down from heaven, the manna. And he says, ultimately, that's me. I'm the bread that comes down that that you should feed on, that you should believe on to be saved. And they grumbled just as their forefathers did, as they grumbled in the wilderness. But that wasn't enough. Exodus 17, 3, again. The people thirsted there for water and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? I mean, how many times does God have to show up? 
How many times does God have to provide for them? Even in the midst of their complaining and whining, he still feeds them. He still cares for them. And then here again, in a sense, it's a picture of us, right? We can be like them. We've seen God work in our lives. We've seen his faithfulness, and yet somehow we resort back to complaining. So Moses cries out to God in Exodus 17.4. Moses has had enough. He's like, really? I didn't sign up for this. He says, what else should I do to this people? A little more and they will stone me. It was getting to the point where they were going to put Moses to death. Moses is crying out to God. God, I'm losing all options here. I'm trying everything with this obstinate and disobedient people. That's where God tells Moses, grab that staff and strike the rock at Horeb and watch the water flow out. Estimates say there was two million Jews at the time. It wasn't like he struck the rock and a couple gallons of water came out. You need enough water for two million Jews. Talk about an amazing miracle. So Moses strikes the rock, out comes the water, and again, the Jews are cared for. Exodus 17, 7, Moses named that place Masa and Meribah. Testing and quarreling, that's what those words mean. Masa and Meribah, testing and quarreling. That's what Moses named it because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? Wow, what pride, what arrogance. Is God really among us? Who are you, Moses? That's what grumbling really is, isn't it? It's us raising our finger at God. It's us elevating ourselves. It's pride. Why is this happening to me? It's selfishness. And God needs to break that in our lives. Instead of worship, like Job, they complained, grumbled, and tested the Lord. They couldn't say like Job, but it is my consolation, and I rejoice in unsparing pain. They couldn't say that. They couldn't say, though he slay me, I will hope in him. They couldn't say, I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Instead, they tested the Lord and they were laid low in the wilderness. But it culminated in Exodus 32. You know that chapter, many of you, the golden calf. See, instead of worship the Lord, they grumbled and complained, but we're all going to worship something. And so what happens in Exodus 32 is Moses goes up on the mountaintop. He's on Mount Sinai spending time with God. And Aaron constructs this golden calf, and the text tells us that they worshiped the creature rather than the creator. The grumbling led to false worship, which ultimately led to death. And none of them ultimately went to the promised land. None of them entered into God's rest. The unchecked grumbling led to death. It's very serious. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 6 and verse 10 State, these things happen as examples for us, that we should not crave evil things as they craved, nor grumble as some of them, as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. So they were both written as examples for us. Both Job is an example and the Israelites were example. Calamity, adversity, trials, God allowed in both. They just both reacted differently. One passed the test, the other didn't. One clung to God and his word and trusted him, the other chose to grumble. One was refined as pure gold, 
the other was laid low in the wilderness. One was blessed and lived, the scripture tells us, to an old age. The other was judged, died young, and did not enter God's rest. Both are examples for us. The third point I want to make today about Job is that he rightly applied James 1.17 in his life. Now, yes, James 1.17 was written thousands of years after Job lived, but the principles found in James 1.17, the truths in that verse describe Job's life, especially early on in chapter 1, verses 20 through 22. And it's fitting because James is the only book that references Job in the New Testament. I didn't know that. James 5.11, that's the only verse that mentions Job. And in this book, James 1.17, every good thing bestowed, Every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. The Lord's the gift giver. As Job said, naked have I come into the world, naked I will return to it. God gives, God takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. God's the one that gives the gifts. God gave Job all his wealth. He came into the world naked, destitute, with nothing, God gave him all the sheep and the oxen and the donkeys and the servants. God gave him his children. God gave him all these good gifts. So when God now takes those away, if we have the right perspective like Job, we can say God gives, God takes away, blessed be his name. We can bless him because we know that it's from him. It's all his. And he can take it at any time. Job had the right perspective. It says that God is the father of lights. Isn't that interesting, bringing us back to Philippians chapter 2 where we started? How Paul said, this is how you prove yourselves to be innocent and blameless. Children of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you appear as lights of the world. When you don't complain, when you rejoice in the Lord, when you worship him, you mirror God to the world correctly. He's the father of lights. He is light. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And then he said to his disciples, and he said to us, you are the light of the world. When we grumble and complain and are bitter, we're not representing God correctly to the world. We're not being the lights in the world that we should be. So may God help us. James 5.11. Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job, and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. Job endured. The Israelites didn't. He endured the trial. He endured the pain. He continued to cling to the Lord. The question for us today is, what is God asking you to endure? What is he asking me to endure? At home, at work, at school, Wherever it may be, whatever situation of life you are in, are we enduring it with joy, with thankfulness? Are we trusting the Lord? Scripture is clear. God brings tests our way. It's one of the first messages I think I preached up here in Idaho in someone's backyard or living room was passing the tests of the faith or something like that. I forget the title. I was going to say grab the DVD or grab the tape, listen, but it was in someone's living room, so I think at the Dostockies. But tests come our way every day in life. Little tests, big tests, 
Are we going to pass these tests? The good news is, and I mentioned I think during that teaching, was we have someone, we know someone, who passed every single test. His name is Jesus. That's the good news. As we hear a message like this and you go, yeah, I've been complaining. Okay, that's kind of convicting. Yeah, I said this this week I shouldn't have. I need to work on it. Praise God. That's what Ephesians 5.10 talks about. Trying to please the Lord. That should, that's the Christian walk. We want to please him in all things. We want to try to please him with how we live. But we're never going to reach that standard. We can try with the help of the Holy Spirit but there's one who did reach that standard and his name is Jesus. Perfectly passed every test and when we believe in him, we are accredited his righteousness. Travis Key sent me a song this week. He's fighting the battles or we're fighting the battles that he's already won. It's that Shane and Shane song and I think I shared it with you guys a couple weeks ago. We're fighting the battles that he's already won. He's already defeated Satan on the cross. He already passed every test. He never complained. So now we fight from a place of victory, not from a place of defeat. Oh man, I just, I'm going to leave church today and I'm sure I'm going to complain. I'm sure there's something this week I'm going to complain about. Then I failed. No. I'm fighting from a place of victory. My righteousness is from Christ. I'm considered perfect now not because of anything I've done, but because of what he's done for me. That's the hope and the truth and the joy of the gospel is that I'm saved because of what Jesus did for me and that I now have his righteousness and I fight and I struggle in this life from a place of victory, that God's not there to just condemn me anytime I slip up. Oh, there you go again, complaining. Nope, I can bring it right back to the Lord and say, Lord, thank you that I have the righteousness of Christ. Thank you that he never complained so here I am again, Lord. Here I am again, your humble servant. I messed up. Thank you for forgiving me and loving me. Help me to do better now moving forward. That's the Christian walk. That's the joy of following the Lord, that he loves us. He's there to help us, and he'll make sure that we finish the course and keep the faith. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your truth. Thank you for your word today, Lord. We thank you, Lord, that we have Christ's righteousness. We thank you that we fight from a place of victory. Lord, would you help us to worship you, to rejoice in you, to remember that you are the good gift giver, that you are the father of lights, that you are a good God, and that whatever you're allowing in our lives is for our good and for your glory. So may we receive it, Lord, as Job said, not only receive the good but also the adversity. May we not blame you, blame anyone else, or sin in whatever it is that we may go through in life. Lord, we trust you. We love you. We thank you that we have salvation in Christ and are forgiven and cleansed in him. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.